You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. But I am delighted that you're here. And uh, it's such a great thing to be together, gathered together on the Lord's day, in the spirit, as God's people around the word. That's what we're here to do, and so I want to set your expectations accordingly. Now, part of our gathering as a church is we believe that God, uh, in his word, has given us two ordinances, two things that we are supposed to do to proclaim the Lord's death, his finished work, until he comes again, meaning that he is alive and he will return. One of those is believer's baptism. And next Sunday, we will actually have a believer's baptism in this very room. You might ask yourself, self, where are they going to put all that water? Oh, you'll have to come and see. We've got a lot of deacons doing this. It's going to be incredible. But we uh, get to do that a couple times a year, and we absolutely love to do it. If you have never been baptized, immersed baptism, that, that baptism is that which signifies and symbolizes your initiation, your entrance into the covenant community because the church is the new covenant community of the Spirit, symbolizing your death, burial, and resurrection, being raised to walk in newness of life in Christ. If you've never done that or your family members or some complete stranger you just met at the coffee shop has never done that, we would love to talk with you about that. This morning, right after our second service, right after we say amen and benedict, we're going to be on the second floor. I'm told there's cookies. And we'll talk about what believer's baptism means. We'll have a couple conversations. And then next Sunday, March 4th, in this very room in our second service, we're going to get to celebrate believer's baptism. So I'm going to invite you to pray about being a part of that if you never have, or if your kids perhaps are ready or they're beginning to say things like, hey, I really want some of that grape juice. Can I please get baptized? Now's the time for us to have that conversation. We'll be the bad guys. We'll check them out. You know, we'll, no, no, no spirit in there. Or maybe there is, I don't know. We'll check on that. We wanna help build the community of faith together. Well, we're gonna transition here a little bit. I wanna just kind of let you know, this morning is gonna be a little bit of a different kind of a morning. We have been told by the city of Tyler that they will be cutting power to our entire building here in a little bit. And when we said when, they were like, yeah, you'll know. So, <laughs> so if that happens, we've got folks at the ready with flashlights. We'll try to get you down the stairs uh, as, as orderly as we can. It's not supposed to be till one o'clock. If I'm still going at one o'clock, the power needs to go out anyway, right? So uh, thank you for all the amens. You're actually awake now. This is when it's good for you to be like Brian and get quiet and comfortable, all right? Just shut her down. Well, I was thinking about this week and um, I was reminded uh, of about, oh, I don't know, it's been not quite a year and a half. And um, not a particularly proud season in my life, but it's real. And I think it's, uh, yet again, I, I happen to be the perfect uh, sermon illustration for how not to be what not to do. Not quite a year and a half ago, many of you know, I uh, experienced a pretty major heart attack and went through a whole lot of uh, excitement that had to do with all that. And at that same time, man... Uh, still pretty awesome. Um, a lot of you were really awesome, and you did things like um, 
bring us sweet potato soup and salads and lasagnas. And you just kept bringing stuff and taking care of stuff. And, and I sat there feeling really vulnerable. And I had to tell some of you, hey, look, uh, I know the heart attack happened in December and it's now Valentine's Day and I still haven't showered. I'm sorry about that, but you're here anyway. Uh, but gosh, and, and you just kept coming with more provision and blessing and you took care of my wife, my kids, and just this shower of affection and care and concern. And I'm gonna level with you in my flesh and in my pride and in my return to normalcy quest, my fleshly idea that I can fix this, I'll get back to the way things used to be. Part of what my thought processes were was how am I ever gonna pay all these people back? Like one dude brought us this Mexican casserole stuff. I don't know what was in it. I think there was hominy. Uh, there was pretty sure there's some chorizo and there may have been some lips and face. I don't know. It was incredible. We ate that stuff like it was going out of style. And I, how am I ever gonna repay that? That took some incredible creativity, some effort. And I think, well, okay, I gotta figure out how to, how to even the scales back because right now I'm in a position of weakness. And I don't like to be in a position of weakness. I, I feel like I've got I've to try to give it back so that they don't feel like I really am as weak as I am. And even though I was laid out uh, for the first time in my life, didn't have a blood pressure of, you know, 300 over 200, uh, I was actually freezing for the first time ever. I was like, this is what people talk about when it's cold. I've never experienced that. This, yeah, this is pretty miserable. Wow, I should get a jacket. And just weak as I could possibly be, but still thinking, Gosh, I, I, need to, I need to pay them back somehow. And I think it was talking to a few of you that had come over and said, no, no, you, you don't understand. That, that's not how this works. And I said, you're right. I, I don't understand, actually. In all my understanding of the gospel, I confess it is still sometimes difficult for me to really legitimately, sincerely and authentically receive the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem me to him and to all of you. I still feel like at some level, yeah, but I have to. Yeah, but I have to. And it's really tragic that I still feel like that even in the days since that heart attack when I, things will go well and I think, oh man, that's right, that's right. Um, it's going well, God's blessing. I need to be really good so that he'll keep the blessing train on the tracks. And it's a cataclysmic error in understanding of what grace actually is. Any attempt on my part to, to do some act of obedience or service when I recognize his grace is to steal from myself the joy that God desperately wants to give because he is a grace-giving God. It's who he is, and that's what he does. So this morning, I think this text we're gonna cover is gonna speak right into that. I have a default tendency, maybe you do too, maybe I'm not the only one, to treat God as if he is transactional. Like I'm gonna do this, therefore God will do that. Or if I don't do this, then God will do this. But what we're gonna find in our text this morning is that God is not transactional. He is a covenantal God. He moves his life toward mine for my sake because he loves me despite every evidence I can produce as to why he shouldn't. But rightly recognizing this God of the cosmos, that he has condescended to lovingly bless me, not this, not this 
weird idea of some code of conduct or rule book that exists in my fallen mind or some weird little genie that doesn't exist but only in my fallen mind. No, instead, rightly recognizing God that he loves to bless. He delights in giving grace. And so I would offer, what, what is this about? How, how can I help? What can I bring to you this morning? I would just say this, joy. Joy comes from truly understanding and accepting our big idea for the day, which goes like this. There's no payback for grace. There's no payback for grace. And when we find ourselves trying to say, well, thanks God, now here, let me stop. Stop, you've missed the point already. And you know what? He's okay with that too. When we recognize the blessing that is in our marriage, with our kids, with our parents, with our jobs, with our resources and relationships and our health, and we go, okay, God, that's really awesome. Now let me stop and start over. There's no payback for grace. I'm gonna invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter seven. 2 Samuel chapter seven. Now, if you've been with us at all this spring semester, you know that we are in a sermon series called The Life of David. As we investigate all the narratives about this poet, shepherd, warrior, and king, and this David is pointing us forward to the ultimate David that will come. There is going to be one who will come who is a better David than David, who is more perfectly and precisely what David should have been but could not have been. And all of the stories of the Old Testament are pointing us forward to Christ. Jesus himself, as he encounters two disciples on the road to Emmaus, tells them, all of those stories that you know, they are about me. They are not about you. He says in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, beginning with Moses, that's the Pentateuch, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He says, the reason you're grieving is because you've tried to read yourself into those stories. Don't do that. They're all about me. They're all preparing you for and pointing to me. That is the interpretive key of the Old Testament. And so as we study these scriptures, these narratives in the Old Testament, we understand that David and all that David is is preparing us for the better David that will come. We've covered a lot of ground through 1 Samuel thus far. We've seen this shepherd boy, David, get anointed. This young, redheaded, ruddy guy gets anointed by Samuel. He will be king but at least 10 years will go by before he actually ascends the throne. Meanwhile, he's got to deal with a guy named Saul, who is crazy. David kills Goliath. He marries Saul's daughter. He's on the run. He flees in and out of the caves and the strongholds. He has to flee Saul over and over again. He even has the chance, as we learned last week, to kill Saul, but does not do it. He will not do God's will unless he can do God's will God's way, is what we learned. Well, we're gonna sort of fast forward. Last week, we finished up in chapter 24. This week, we're gonna really hit the fast forward button. We're gonna go all the way through to chapter seven is where we're gonna begin. So just in between, to let you know, in chapter 25, Samuel dies. The prophet, the last judge of Israel, Samuel dies. We don't know how, we don't know why, God's done, and he takes Samuel home. Not a whole lot of pomp and circumstance. He's simply buried in Ramah. And then we meet a guy named Nabal. Now, Nabal literally means fool. So I told the Barnetts in the first service, that's not an option for you. You do not want to name your kid Nabal. It literally means fool. So there's a good chance that Nabal's name wasn't really Nabal, kind of like Jezebel. Her name means island trash. Probably wasn't her actual name. No good parents or even bad parents are gonna name their daughter, ooh, look, island trash. They're not gonna do that. Nabal, it's a, it's a Hebrew thing. They're saying this guy was a fool, and sure enough, he was. 
But a woman named Abigail intervenes and stops some bloodshed, and ultimately David ends up marrying this beautiful woman named Abigail. In chapter 26, David and a couple of his mighty men sneak into the camp of Saul yet again. This time Saul's asleep, and David takes the spear and the water jug right next to Saul's head and goes back up on the hill and says, dude, I could have killed you again. Leave me alone. Learning something here about Saul and his relentless pursuit of his enemy, David. And then we're gonna see that, uh, well, David's gonna have to continue to flee from Saul. He goes and he lives with the Philistines for a year and a half. And even in that super dark time where he's not really where he's supposed to be, God blesses him. And David continues to grow in resources and in means. And Saul gets so desperate that he does this really weird deal in chapter 28, and he consults the witch of Endor, who raises Samuel from the dead. Weird story, a lot of questions about that. I invite you to talk with Pastor Matt, Pastor Mike. They've got every answer you can possibly imagine. I just wonder about the breath of one dead Samuel who shows up and he's like, whoa, what are y'all doing? They're like, whoa. And so Saul is cursed. It's not going to go well because he has done this abomination before God. And so uh, David has more battles with the Philistines and the Amalekites, and Saul himself is finally killed, desecrated, his head cut off, his body pinned to the gate at Bethshean, and his son Jonathan, David's best friend, is also killed. Well, then 2 Samuel is going to open up. David is mourning and grieving over Saul and Jonathan. And then we've got more war between David and the remainder of Saul's household. It's a really bloody civil war. We've got this guy named Abner, who's apparently like some spider ninja that can kill anybody and does. And so he's on the run and David trying to chase him and back and forth. It's really this great, wonderful narrative. And finally, there's a guy named Ishbosheth. Again, not an option for the name of the Barnett's baby. Ishbosheth, not very nice. And he is actually David's opponent. And he's murdered in cold blood in his bed by two guys who are trying to get in good with David. They go in, they stab him in the belly, they chop off his head, and they walk over to David's house and they go, ding dong. And that's like the worst greeting ever. Hey, there's a severed head of my enemy. That's weird. And David says, you shouldn't have done that. We're going to do God's will God's way. And so he kills those two guys. Whew, weird time to be alive, okay? But that's what happens. And then finally, David beats the Philistines in chapter five for the last time, two decisive battles. The Philistines are pretty much beaten back to the coast. There's not gonna be any more massive conflict with the Philistines. And so David brings the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat that includes all of the covenant-keeping remnants of God's interactions with Israel. He brings it to Jerusalem, but he does it the wrong way. And some guy named Uzzah, whose name even sounds indecisive, like Uzzah, he reaches out and he grabs the ark and he falls dead as a hammer. That's a weird day. And then finally the ark makes its way to Jerusalem. This is where we finally pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'll begin reading in verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, <sighs> Ten long years of turmoil, of trauma, of drama, of travail. David's been on the run fighting giants, fighting his own king, all these crazy things. But the Lord has finally given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, there the two of them are, 
up on the roof, on the terrace, having a nice chai latte, just completely chillaxing, right? And David says, see now, Brocephus, I live... No, it's not really. I didn't talk that way back then. That's just it's my little fantasy world of how that would have gone down. He says, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan says, behold, let us beseech God and find out what he should have us do. No, Nathan doesn't do that. Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart. for The Lord's with you. Rubber stamp, chink, careful. Actually, Nathan's wrong about that. They never bothered to ask God, and God's not here for that, which is sort of an interesting cog in all of what the books of Samuel are telling us. They're telling us over and over again that God's servants are often limited or wrong. I know given the leadership at this church, it's hard for you to imagine that, but it's true. God's servants are often wrong and certainly limited, which should prevent us, here's a lesson, from establishing human heroes in the kingdom. We must never do that. I love Josh White. I think he's great, but he's also a human who is prone to error, who is prone to being wrong. We see it all throughout Samuel's writings. The first guy we meet is a dude named Eli. He's the priest, and he sees Samuel's mother named Hannah praying fervently in front, of the, in front of the tabernacle. And Eli walks up and thinks, oh man, this chick is liquored up. Get out of here. Get, get, get. And she's not. She's praying before her God. He was dead wrong. Later, Samuel tells us about his own error where he goes to Bethlehem, meets Jesse and says, let me see all of your sons. And the first one, whose name is Eliav, walks by and Samuel, the prophet of God, says, now that guy's tall, dark, and handsome. Surely he's the Lord's anointed. He was wrong. We heard in chapter 25 of 1 Samuel that David is about to make a smear and a stain of this guy named Nabal, but he was wrong. He was not supposed to do it. David and Nathan agreed to build God a house, and they were wrong. They were wrong. See, God's wisdom is pre-existing. It is present, and it is everlasting. It is eternal. The kingdom is never safe only in human hands. And the, godless, or the godliness of those human hands that holds the kingdom does not guarantee or certify success. The kingdom is safe in God's hands, even if it doesn't look like it to us. Now, this is a really important thing for how we think about God. About a thousand years ago, uh, one of the great saints of the church named Anselm, he said that God is the greatest conceivable being. That's what St. Anselm said. He's the greatest conceivable being, and if you can think of anything greater than that, that's what God is. And when you think, yeah, but he's actually even better than that, correct, that's what God is. He is the greatest conceivable being. However, we live in a culture and in an age where we don't want that. You need to look no farther than our Hollywood movie lineups this coming summer. We are right in the center of a comic book culture. It completely colors all that we are, all that we do, all that we value. We don't want a greatest conceivable being to actually hold the kingdom. We just want someone who's a little bit stronger than us. 
who's a little bit more powerful than I am, so that if I need something, I can call him, but when I'm done with him, I just shoot him back to Krypton. That'll be enough, thank you. Tips in the mail, go away. And they're as tragically flawed as we are. They're just a little bit stronger, which tells me that I might actually rise to that station one day. It's really sort of pathetic and laughable that the best movies we can produce are completely unoriginal. They haven't come up with a new Hollywood action thriller for the summer in forever. And now all these different crossovers of superheroes, I saw, I think, a trailer the other night while watching the Olympics. Now I'm pretty sure the purple Teletubby and Hulk are gonna be fighting like Spider-Man and Papa Smurf. And it's gonna be an epic, like, cosmic throwdown because this is the best we can come up with. How is that entertaining? But this is all we've got. Because that's all we want is someone who's just a little bit better than us. But that is not the God of the Bible, not by a long shot. Well, God's gonna show us something really spectacular. Back to chapter seven. He says this, verse four, but the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Hey, hey, David, are you sure you wanna build me a house? Let, let me remind you of something, God says. And in verse six, this actually, it, it gets me because you're going to see, I think, one of the most beautiful pictures of the gospel. Here in 2 Samuel chapter seven, verses six and seven. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. Listen, in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, that I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? I love this. God, the eternal God, sees and hears the suffering of his people Israel in Egypt who are hopeless, hapless, and helpless. And he saves them. Why? Because they were just so spunky and cute. No, they were the least, the last, and the lost. And God saves them. He brings them up out of the land. And you know what he does? He follows them around because his deepest desire is to dwell with them, even in their stink, even in their defiance, their depravity, their rebellion. Over and over again, he delivers them. He parts the Red Sea. He sends water. He says manna. He destroys Pharaoh's army, and they continue to rebel. You know what God does? He moves around in a tent with them. I'm just gonna tell you, I'm gonna level with it. If I'm God in that context, the very first time they even raise an eyebrow to me, I am gone to the other side of the galaxy, see you in a couple eons, but not God. He continues to manifest his presence with them while they are yet sinners. That should sound very gospel-like. It's Romans 5. While they are shaking their fists saying, we will not have it, but we desperately want it, but just not like that. God says, I have dwelled in tents. I have gone about in the desert with you. Why? Because that's the kind of God that I am. I am not transactional. I'm not like you. I'm covenantal. I move my life toward you for your sake. Because there's no payback in grace. That's what he says in verses six and seven. It's a marvelous gospel passage. Now then in verse eight, David's gonna receive from the prophet Nathan sort of a roll call 
of all that God has done for him. Now, therefore, verse eight, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. You didn't have anything to do with that. I did that in you, with you, through you, and to you, God says. I gave you my unmerited favor and blessing. And I have been with you wherever you went. You remember that whole spit in the beard, weird thing you were doing in Gath of the Philistines? I was with you. Never left you. I have always been with you. I have gone and cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name like the earth of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping name of God, this is what he says, verse 11. The Lord will make you a house. God says, I'll one-up you by infinity. It even changes words. David says, we're gonna make you a, a, a dwelling, a little hut, a house. It's gonna have a nice little picket fence. It's gonna have a garbage disposal. It's gonna have some borders up on the top. It's gonna be, it's gonna be nice. God says, yeah, no, no, listen. You, you, you wanna build me a house? I'm going to build you a dynasty, don't you see? Changes the word. The house is the idea of a royal lineage that will never end. Now, you can sort of understand why David has this thought process. We know that in every civilization of antiquity, the Sumerians, the Egyptians, and the Assyrians, all of them have narratives where a king goes into battle, perceives that his God, lowercase g, has delivered him, subdued his enemies, and so he goes back, builds a temple to that God, and the gravy train just keeps on running. That was how it was done in Sumeria, in Egypt, and Assyria. And so David says, hey, yes, I have rest. God has done this. God has done this. I'm gonna build him a house like the other nations do. And God says, the problem is I'm not like the other gods because I exist. And I'm not transactional. I am covenantal. I have moved my life towards you. And then in verses 12 to 16, God's gonna show his persistence in his promise. Verse 12, he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. God's going to deal with the three elements that will threaten the promise. I'm going to do this. I'm going to have this covenant with you unilaterally. You have no responsibility. I'm doing this. And there's only three things that might potentially threaten. They are death and sin and time. And God says death is not gonna be a stop to this because there's going to come one who will live, who will die, but then who will live again and utterly defeat death. And as Josh said, make death our servant. It says again in verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity. Talking about Solomon here, not talking about Jesus. I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. And yet there will be one who will come a thousand years later, who will be the recipient of stripes, of wounds, but not for his own transgression and iniquity, for those of the whole world, including you and me. Verse 15, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. 
and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David, that was really sweet. You wanted to build me a little uh, Rubbermaid shack out back. I'm going to build for you a dynasty because there is no payback for grace. When you think you can't take any more grace, our God keeps covenantally blessing and blessing and blessing and blessing because that's the kind of God he is. And the moment we think, yeah, but what am I gonna do to pay him back? That is a arrogant step at trying to demonstrate our own strength and we have none save his. Verse 16, in your house, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Death is defeated. Sin has been defeated. Even time, it will never cause it to expire. So how can this be? I want to say this again. There is no payback for grace. One has come. This Jesus, born of a woman, born under law, Galatians says, at just the right time. And the Gospel of John says that he tabernacled among us. God made flesh. His name, Emmanuel, means he is the with us God because what God desires more than anything else is to dwell with his people. And then he sends his spirit to literally indwell every believer for all eternity. God could literally not be closer to his people than he is in this age. The spirit of God indwelling every single believer. He could not be closer. And scripture goes on to tell us that Jesus, God with us, he was the, the, the walking around presence, the dwelling of God among men. And now he does so by his spirit. And Peter goes on to say that we as living stones are being built up into the dwelling of God. Yes, the temple was for the demonstration of the glory of God, but more than that, it is the place where God desired deeply to dwell with his people. Do you know that God desires deeply to be with you? He is not disinterested. He is not distant, and he is certainly not disappointed. He loves you. He's so desperate to be with you. Look at all the lengths to which he has gone. We've had the amazing opportunity this week to spend some time with Josh White. And so I'm gonna ask, actually, I'm gonna ask Josh to come back up here because uh, we've heard so much from him. We have been singing his music, uh, whether or not he's known that for the last three or four years. And he's been a blessing to us from a distance. And it's always a thrill for me to get to have a conversation with another pastor of another town just to see, hey, what's going on? What is the spirit doing in that part of the world, in that culture? What's happening? So I want to just ask Josh to come up here. And uh, we're going to have just a, a little bit of a, of a dialogue. And I, I think it's going to be helpful. Josh, thanks again Dude, so much for being here, just for your ministry, your friendship, your partnership in the gospel. I, I got to, um, this might surprise you, talk at Josh for a very long time last night. And, and he, 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 he took it. He, he, he took it. And uh, then I think he probably went home and, you know, and just ate aspirin. But he took it. He was very gracious, and I appreciate that. But, Josh, one of the things you talked about was uh, the four pillars that Door of Hope Church is founded on. And, and unapologetically, unambiguously, you preach Christ crucified, which is maybe not the most popular thing to say, like Paul said. But when you come to East Texas and you hear us open a text like 2 Samuel 7, man, how does that, how does that passage fit? How does it play in the context that you're leading God's people in Portland? 
Yeah, I think that uh, the concept of, you know, I'm, a, I'm obsessed with vocabulary. Uh, one of my favorite authors of all time is one of the Inklings, actually Lewis's best friend, Owen Barfield. He was this great philologist. And uh, as, a, as preacher, I would say that poets and preachers are the guardians of language. They ought to be anyway. Uh, I think there's a loss of uh, understanding of language often in the pulpit today. Um, but not from this guy. And <laughs> just waxing eloquence. Uh, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that I was the one monologuing at him last no, night. No, no, <laughs> so, not enough. Uh, but I, I think in, a, uh, in understanding the word covenant, covenant's a very sacred word. It's an important word that we need to cling to. Uh, the church needs to have a robust understanding of it. Uh, and I'm in a post-Christian city, a truly post-Christian city. My, both my kids, uh, my son Henry, who's 16, my daughter Hattie, who's 12, uh, they go to public schools where neither of them have a single, actually Hattie has one, uh, but the, uh, of the two kids, we have one friend that actually is a Christian. So Henry goes to school where he doesn't have a single friend who has ever gone to church except for when he has invited them to come to Door of Hope. So Door of Hope's uh, explosion uh, was primarily with, with millennials uh, who had never heard the gospel. Everyone told me, don't start a church in Portland. It's the hardest city to start a church in. They're not going to be open to the gospel. But I think a, I went in with this deep-rooted understanding of God's covenantal faithfulness toward me. Uh, and that's the essence of the gospel, that even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Uh, and that, that this deep commitment uh, that, is, that is rooted in, in God's entrance, not simply into our humanity, uh, but actually into our lowest point, our sin. <laughs> uh, that's, that's why I say that, that uh, there was a, a great thinker who once said, no matter how deep a hole we dig, Jesus' love goes deeper still. Uh, that's the essence of covenant. God is with us. Now, it's interesting today uh, in looking at the Second Samuel 7, and even looking at David's own ignorance about what this covenantal promise that God is making with him is about, I believe that David began to understand it more fully, especially when you look at Psalm 139, which in my opinion actually is the greatest text in the Bible uh, around the, the topic of grace. We always think of grace... It's a word you don't find until the New Testament, mm. uh, and the Old Testament doesn't have much to say about it. The Old Testament is filled with God's grace. The opening of Genesis is Adam and Eve in the garden hiding in sin. Who's the one pursuing them? We, we often picture God walking in the garden yelling, Adam, where are you? What have you done? <laughs> no, they are hiding while God, the loving father, he, gets, he, doesn't, he doesn't turn his back on sin. He actually is right there in the midst of it, confronting it, saying, I still love you. That's the covenantal God. David understood that in Psalm 139. You guys know that Psalm well. It's a Psalm that theologians love to talk abstractly about the attributes of God, which are not helpful. Don't ever use the word omniscience or omnipotence or omnipresence. It, it is not helpful. Uh, but uh, Note to I, was, I, I spoke at a seminary once, and I'm like, how many of you guys use these words and all these hands raised? I'm like, don't. No, that's dumb. <laughs> these kids were like, <laughs> but the, the essence, everything that God reveals about himself in Scripture is directly connected to his love for humanity. And David says this profound thing. He says, he, says, he gives us an, uh, the, the facets, what I call the facets of grace. First of all, uh, if grace means that God is with us, Emmanuel, he says, uh, he says, Lord, you know me. 
You know my thoughts. What does that mean? He doesn't know David and everything about him because he knows everything. He knows him because he cares. It's relational knowledge. That's the first facet of grace. Grace means I'm known. The second component of that psalm, David goes on to say, where can I go to escape your presence? If it's just about God being everywhere at all times, that just makes him a creepy voyeur. That's not what David's getting at. Once again, he's saying that not only does grace mean I'm known, it means that I'm not alone. God, you're with me. Was it, what did Jesus say? And lo, I am with you to the end of the age. And then the third facet, when he's, he starts pondering God's, how my days have been written, uh, and such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It shows us that grace not only means that I am known, not only means that I'm not alone, but it also means that I have the power to change. Uh, and I think that that this is the essence of what uh, Door of Hopes, I don't go around talking to non-Christians about the word covenant, uh, but I try to express the concept of covenant every time um, we witness to the reality of Jesus in a city where people honestly know nothing about him other than what they've heard on the History Channel. Like, <laughs> they question, did Jesus really get taken by his uncle to China and study under Buddha? I'm like, where did, where, where did you get that? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm like, I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> Would have been awesome, but I don't think so. It's a fascinating story. Yeah. Wow. Well, Josh, it is, it's such a huge encouragement just to hear what God is doing in Portland because yeah. a lot of times we sort of hear so much naysaying that, you know, the world's going to heck in a handbasket, blah, blah, blah. And yet there are people that love Jesus in the Pacific Northwest. And it's such an encouragement to hear your story with him. One of the things that you said, however, about your church was so it resonated with me is sometimes it feels like the people in your church yeah. don't believe that the message they believe is believable. Right. Like no one else yeah. outside the church would ever believe that. Yeah. So how do we, how do we address that? Well, I, I always joke that Portland is the city of, and, and I myself am this, my wife and I are from the Northwest, we're true urbanites. We're what we call the, we fall into the bohemian uh, uh, center. I always say Portland is the bohemian center of the universe. And so uh, one of the things that we deal with in Portland and it, it, a postmodern city that's filled with young adults, it's a, it's a, it's a magnet for college age kids. They say that Portland, if Washington DC is a city of power, Portland is a city of pleasure. We have more amazing restaurants, music venues, record stores, uh, then, then even, I, I go to New York a couple times a year, and uh, Portland has so much for how small it is. Uh, and it's just a cultural hub where you can just be inundated with all that the world, uh, this world system has to offer you. And with that creates this incredible level of cynicism. Like, I don't use slides at Door of Hope. We don't use lights. Uh, we, we have windows uh, at the new venue we have, but uh, people are so cynical that the, the joke is that you are guilty until proven innocent in Portland, Oregon. And so uh, that's how people view you. And that kind of vantage point, it creates this, this what I call this incredible level of self-consciousness, this sort of solipsism where each person uh, believes that they truly are the center of the universe. And they might actually be the only thing that really exists. <laughs> and so um, how do you bring the gospel to that? Well, people that get saved, what I found is that God had called Darcy and I uniquely to the city because we used to live in that mindset, especially me growing, uh, not coming to faith until my late 20s. 
uh, and being a guy that wanted to be a rock star uh, and was am super ambitious, super intense, and took advantage of everyone that I met to accomplish my dreams, my hopes, my ambitions. So I always say sin is not the little things you do wrong. It is a rebellion against God's sovereign rule and a rejection of his grace. And, and what I have found is that Darcy and I recognize he who has been forgiven much loves much. And we have just been forgiven so much that for us, like when I got saved, I, I literally became like Buddy the Elf. Uh, you know, where I was just like, when he walks into his father's office, if you guys have never seen Elf, something's horribly wrong. Oh, that's not okay. Uh, yeah. No grace <laughs> for that. When, he, when, he, when yeah. he walks into the office, he's like, I'm in love and I don't care who knows. That's how I was about Jesus, obnoxiously so. I would say that I didn't, I didn't have a, it's the gift that God gave me since I wasn't able to go to college or get a seminary education. And I'm, I'm an obsessive reader, but that's just me trying to overachieve and make up for all the years that I underachieved. But, uh, <laughs> but what I- I eat nachos when that yeah. happens. Yeah. <laughs> what I have uh, is, which I think is my one really strong gift, is I really actually believe that Jesus loves me. And I actually think that's pretty compelling, uh, that, that it is not, the world is not looking for intellectual capacity. Uh, they're not looking for strong arguments. What they're looking for uh, is spiritual illumination. They, may just, they just don't know that. What they want to be convinced by is that at least you don't have to prove to them uh, that Jesus is real, but they, they should believe that you believe what you're saying. And so what I always am calling the church out to, and I think people that grow up in the church, this is very difficult for them. They have this kind of, this sort of pseudo faith in Jesus, enough faith to get saved, but not enough faith to live victoriously. Uh, and I think that, that there's a fear uh, of the uh, that self consciousness creates a fear to present the gospel boldly in a city like Portland. So I had a young guy come to me. And he's like, "Hey, you're not going to believe it's so awesome. I, I was work. I just found out this girl I've worked with for the last two years. She's also a Christian." And I was like, "What is wrong with you? That's horrible. What are you? Why are Christians the only one in the closet today?" <laughs> and I promise you, in Portland, they are the only ones in the closet. Okay, we have the naked bike ride, the five thousand cyclists that where my family and I go sit on the, on the yard while the cyclists ride by. I'm like, honey, look at that one. That's amazing. <laughs> um, so I, what, what, what we encourage is just uh, a recognition that people, we have to believe when Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people unto myself. Yeah. Uh, and the simplicity of the gospel, simplicity is one of our pillars, is that that what the world needs to know is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. And so when we go out and we preach, people know they're sinners. They know they're broken. They know that they're the center of their universe. What we want to help them understand is that you may, we make horrible masters. Uh, and Jesus is the good master and the only one who can set us free. Mm. And so we invite people to come in and experience that. And that means that we have to be bold enough uh, to actually present Jesus and, and have the courage to say, Hey, would you like to come to my church with me? Would you like to come and hear about what it is that I believe? To not be afraid to carry a Bible, and to carry a Bible around in Portland's a counterintuitive <laughs> thing, even though we're the book city. I'm, I'm like, you have pals, you carry lots of other books, carry the scriptures around with you. Let people know, don't be afraid to let people know that Jesus really is, unless, you're, unless you don't know in the depths of your being that he really does love you and saved you. He's a covenantal God, and that faithfulness uh, should be something that we shout from the rooftops. Because people, I promise you, what I've seen in Portland, everyone said it wouldn't work. And I think often the reason that churches fail is that people go in and they're trying to figure out how to make our 
message somehow palatable for modern sensibilities. Uh, and in doing so, Jesus is the one that gets left at the, at the curb. Uh, and if we just come forward, people, I was asked to share yesterday, how do you share the gospel in a postmodern city? Simply. Like, hey, I, I see that you're crying. What's going on? Hey, let me tell you about Jesus. You, you think, oh, that's ridiculous. Nobody would take that. <laughs> Surprisingly, they do. Yeah. Because I did. Yeah. Uh, and you did at some point. Uh, people entrusting that the Holy Spirit is actually at work in people's hearts. Uh, especially when we proclaim Jesus, knowing that we have the entire universe at our back saying mm -hmm. yes and amen. Um, and if we believe that in the depths of our being, I believe that the gospel will we'll see another revival. Uh, I think the church is lost in the faith, uh, loss of faith in the power of the message um, has deeply hurt, uh, hurt the body of Christ. I love the church. The church is the new covenant community of the spirit. And it's so encouraging to hear a brother who is who's loving, leading, guiding, guarding God's people in Portland, Oregon. And those of you who are in this room who have now heard from Josh, there will never come a time in all eternity that you don't know him. Sorry. Isn't that great? No, it's so awesome. It's so great. And one day, after like three or four million eons or whatever, I'm going to get like the killer hand tat like he does. It's going to be, and then he's going to, you know, he get freckles. It's going to be awesome and incredible. But I love the fact that the Spirit of God doing a work at Door of Hope Church and the Spirit of God doing a work at Bethel Church and, the, and the, the space in between is holy ground because of the good news, the awesome announcement, the headline, the staggering, stunning truth of the gospel. God has done a thing. It is finished to bring people to himself. And those whom he has brought to himself, he's not done with. He is for us. If we would but believe that. And so if you're here this morning, and after all of this, you're not a believer. You're thinking, yeah, that's really, really sweet, but I, I, I can do this. And we just want you to know our heart breaks for that. And we say, we don't believe that that's right, but we would like to speak with you about what we believe as the bedrock truth of the cosmos, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. He fulfilled the demands of law, lived a perfect life, and he offers it to us for free because we never could. And he willingly takes all the error of our sin and he pays the check in full. And that's not even the end. He indwells us by his spirit so that Jesus lives his life through us in the here and now. And so there's actually joy between you and me. Otherwise, you couldn't tolerate me. I know. This is very good news. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. And if you want to talk with us about any of that, what we've just covered, we would love to meet you here. Uh, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask you to agree, and then we'll have a benediction, and we'll be dismissed. I want to remind you, if you have any interest at all whatsoever in believer's baptism, please, immediately when I say amen, head down to the second floor for our orientation. Let me ask you to stand. We'll have a word of benediction, and we will be dismissed. I'm going to read this from Ephesians 3, one of my favorites. If you'll bear with me one moment. Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, that we don't have to pay back, by the way, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great week.
Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.